0: Welcome to Money Talks. My name is Mike Campbell. As I say every week, I am glad you're with me. I hope you're telling friends, family to share what we're doing on Money Talks because there's so much stuff to keep abreast of right now. One of them is gasoline prices. Well, I've got Chris Sims, the Alberta Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, to come on with me and really explain the biggest component is taxation. And I think a lot of people don't appreciate that. They saw the oil price go up this week and assume that will jack up gasoline prices. Well, oil's only about a third of the price at the pump. But man, you look at what uh, three levels of government are adding into it. Well, if you're not living in Vancouver, you're thrilled. Wait till you hear what they pay. But there are better places she's going to talk to us about that. But I think it's an important subject given people's concern about it. Also, I've got Mark Leibovit on. He's been Timers Digest Timer of the Year, Gold Market Timer of the Year. The list is a long one. Where are we at today in the markets, though? Uh, have we run the course in this bear market as some are suggesting did we get a bounce this week and then man by the end of the week we certainly disabused ourselves of that that we've missed some big opportunity but there's so much to talk to him about whether it's gold whether it's oil whether it's currencies and of course the market he'll be with me Ozzy's going to give us the latest numbers on real estate I've got Victor wrapping up man he's batting cleanup but he's got to be tired there's so much stuff to talk about and of course I've got a very important goofy, I think. I think it's outrageous what's been happening. I'll I'll share with you what I mean by that. Also, of course, quote of the week. Hey, this is a new one. Humpty Dumpty. Yeah, Humpty Dumpty is going to join us for the quote of the week. 151 years ago, Lewis Carroll figured out what was going to happen today. But first, it's one thing to make mistakes. I think it's quite another to learn nothing from them. We're still when you want to compound them. And that's what we're seeing with climate and energy policy. I mean, when it comes to climate change, we've got big government, big environment, live by the mantra, not always right, but never been wrong. Although I'm not sure about the first part of that sentence. I see no evidence that they think they're not always right. But of course, in their eyes, maybe we're getting what they want, which is record high energy prices. I mean, look at gas, energy, that kind of thing, the shortages, because that reduces consumption and emissions go down. Maybe that's the goal. But maybe that's where there's been no, why there's been no acknowledgement of the looming disaster in Europe and UK, with record energy prices and shortages that are a direct result of their no-fossil-fuel, no-nuclear-power climate policies, while completely ignoring the need for backup power when the wind doesn't blow, the sun doesn't shine. Keep in mind, this time last year, this was months before the Ukraine invasion and the decision to sanction Russian energy, The U.K. electricity prices were already up around 1,200 percent. Why? Because they had insufficient energy from their wind farms. There was a lack of wind, and there was no backup plan. The U.K. was forced to demand an increase in coal-fired power, as was Germany, because it had decommissioned three nuclear power plants last December without any idea how to replace their power other than relying on Russian oil and gas imports. And by the way, i got to digress just for a moment. Because I was always so appalled, I know I say this, but Paul, appalled by the school system, which is instead of emphasizing critical thinking skills, chooses one-sided advocacy on the climate file. You know, I wonder if there's anyone in the whole system that's using what's happened in the UK and Europe as a lesson, like a teaching moment into what happens when ideology trumps common sense. Sadly, the system's very keen on teaching students as young as elementary school about the dangers of fossil fuels and climate change when what we're witnessing today is actually a far more pertinent example of the dangers of ideologically rooted stupidity. My bet is no, they're not teaching them. But back to the question, have you heard any politicians in Canada, climate advocates, allies in the media, do any kind of a mea culpa? Because all I've heard is more of the same, doubling down on the thinking, approach, and policies that got us into the mess. As Kyle Bass, chief investment officer of Heyman Capital, I love it. He sums up what we've been talking about for over five years in Money Talks. In quotes, our nation desperately needs a scientific, mathematical, comprehensive plan for energy transition over the next 30 years. The current buffoonery is beyond cringeworthy. Well, I wonder how high energy bills would actually have to go. How many EU companies would have to leave for the U.S. because they want to get lower cost, more reliable energy supply? How much more will their currencies have to fall due to the debasement as a result of hundreds of billions of borrowed energy bailout money? How many factories, small businesses will have to close? How many people will have to really get on the edge of starvation due to the record fertilizer prices that, again, are a direct result of the push to stop natural gas production, made worse by the Russian sanctions, before it would cause a rethink by the climate crowd? The point is that so far, nothing seems to have done that. Let me ask one more comfortable question. How about you? After decades of being spoon-fed the no-fossil-fuels, renewable electric vehicles, now agenda, without any practical details, have you started challenging what you've been being told by politicians, activists, allies in the media? Do you see the danger in the simplicity of the climate agenda? The danger in failing to do a cost-benefit analysis? I mean, what's incredible is not only have we not heard any sign of a rethink, or even an acknowledgement that the timeline for renewable grid was unrealistic or that we don't have the minerals or uh, materials necessary, that instead the push is to censor criticism. This week, the White House National uh, Climate Advisor, Gina McCarthy, demanded that social media like Facebook, Twitter, TikTok, censor any criticism of the cost of a government forced transition to wind and solar power. Come on, that's in the trillions of dollars. I mean, the refusal to acknowledge that fallout from the no questions allowed attitude, and it's combined with a blatant lack of common sense, well, here's the thing. It guarantees there's much more to come in the energy crisis. There will be more shortages. More people will suffer. Be prepared. As Alexander Stahill, chairman and CIO of uh, Bergaben Holding, states, EU energy policy was man-made and deliberate, not a historical accident. It was a result of years of complacency, ignorance, arrogance, or vested interests in corruption. Nothing's changed. Politicians must be held accountable. My question is, will they? Time now for the shocking stat of the week. We had, of course, at the beginning of this week, we had OPEC announcing production cuts. Well, people immediately said, what impact will that have on energy, but gasoline specifically? And my point to them was, it's only about a third of what you pay at the pump. But where do you pay the most, the easiest money? It's got to be in taxes. So I asked Chris Sims to come on with me, Alberta Director of Taxpayer.com, the Canadian Taxpayer Federation, who's done a brilliant job uh, over 20 years of chronicling exactly what's going on in the tax market when it comes to my gasoline. Chris, first of all, appreciate you taking time with me.
1: Thank you. We really appreciate your work, too.
0: Well, and as I say, that's why I say, you know, who's on our side out there? Well, Taxpayer.com, Canadian Taxpayers Federation, it's clearly on our side. And I think it's important that we know what we're actually paying at the pump. So I know we've got different, you know, every area is different because they have different taxes, but we have sort of a broad base there. So, Chris, why don't you just give us the idea of what I'm paying when I show up at the pump and I put the gas in, how much of it is taxation?
1: So very basic broad strokes here, Uh, if you looked out your window or you pulled up uh, in your car and say that the pump price is $1.76, on average in Canada, 55 cents of that per litre is taxes. So an enormous chunk of what you're putting into your vehicle as far as fuel goes, either diesel or gasoline, is taxes.
0: And, I, of course, people listening today from maybe Victoria or Vancouver, et cetera, are sort of going, 176, let me have some of that. Because, of course, in case you're not aware in Vancouver, not you, but I meant the, everyone listening, uh, you know, you're paying one. I, I've paid 242 this week. You know, oh my and gosh. Oh, I know. 242. And then uh, lo- using the stuff that Taxpayer.com has done. I mean, I guess I'm looking at about 80 cents of that being in some form of taxation.
1: Yeah, it will be. Uh, and I'll give you the breakdown, too. Uh, so let's talk Metro Vancouver. So from, you know, the border of Langley there all the way up into North Van. Um, and keep in mind, a lot of folks are, you know, working families in there just trying to commute and make things work. Um, they they pay about 80 cents a litre in taxes. And I can break it down for you. So they've got the TransLink tax there in Vancouver. That's 18 and 5 cents. They've got the first carbon tax in British Columbia, which is 11 cents. They've got the second carbon tax in British Columbia that a lot of people refuse to acknowledge the elephant in the room. That's on average 17 cents. It goes up and down depending on the market. Then you've got the provincial excise tax in Vancouver. It's eight and a half cents. Federal excise tax is 10 cents and the federal sales tax. Now, when we first did our calculation, that was way back when, you know, the pump was super cheap. It was less than two bucks. It was 9.4 cents. Now it's going to be more so, yeah, on average, give or take, it's about 80 cents a litre is taxes.
0: It's like, it's like, by the way, when you mention that we pay GST on top of the other taxes that you yep. just alluded to. And it doesn't matter which problems. Maybe you don't have a TransLink tax. You still got the other taxes. You know, you still got a federal excise tax. You're going to have some sort of provincial tax, that kind of thing. But you pay Tax on the tax. I don't think that may be on the, certainly on the short list of what drives people crazy. (laughs) It does. We
1: get emails all the time on it. It just gives you a good idea, okay? Say you drive a Dodge Grand Caravan, most popular family minivan out there. That's got a 75 liter tank, okay? If you're pulling up to a gas station in Vancouver and you're paying 80 cents a liter, 60 bucks, 60 bucks is taxes when you're filling that thing up every time. It's staggering.
0: Yeah, let's make sure when you say 80 cents liter, you mean 80 cents in gas, uh, in gas taxes per Just liter. Just taxes, man. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. Taxes. No, taxes. No, I mean, but it, it's a serious issue. Uh, I mean, these are the kind of things when we hear some parties talking a lot about income tax, and I go, income tax is not even close to the whole story, you know, and, and if people took a moment and thought of all the other things, and this is what I think ta- uh, Canadian Taxpayer Federation does a great job at, is they... Dig into it. They elaborate. They tell us, you know, remember, you've got a liquor tax. Remember, you've got, uh, you know, a property tax, depending on that size, depending on where you live. There's just so many different ways. Tariffs are, are equivalent of a tax. Those kinds of things. Yep. Well, the burden gets just massive. But that list that you just read off, you know, has, has got to have people shaking their heads. Uh, what's the best place to buy gas i know i'm not going to commute to montreal just to fill up my tank but i don't want to anyways montreal's a bad example but (laughs) what's the best province or city taking the least from me when i fill up the tank
1: actually it's funny you mentioned that uh this is personal for me i just moved to it (laughs) (laughs) i was in british i was born and raised in british columbia i worked on parliament hill for much of my life for like 15 years Came back to a dream job with a CTF in BC, and I couldn't afford to live there anymore. And yeah. I'm now li- literally I'm now living in Alberta. I'm in Lethbridge, and just outside of Lethbridge is uh, a little town. I can go there and get gas. Uh, last week I filled up at 34 oh a dollar thirty four.
0: Oh my liter. gosh! Cause yeah. I, I, I was being sincere. I literally filled up at two forty two. That's Absolutely.
1: just disgusting. It is. And like, yeah. I need to stress that, you know, we can talk about numbers and, but I think giving personal examples matters here because 242, like, I don't know anyone who can afford that. And mm-hmm. to your point, um, it's those on, you know, the, the real working class level paycheck to paycheck people who can least afford it. I got a phone call from a lady, must've been four months ago. It was before I moved. She was beside herself. She was calling from Chilliwack. She and her adult son were sharing a basement suite, okay, paying $2,200 yeah. a month for rent. Her, her adult son had just finished a divorce, unfortunately. His family broke up. He's a tradesman. Works his butt off every day. She phoned me crying because her, her son couldn't afford to fill up his light-duty pickup truck anymore because his job site was up over in Maple Ridge that's real people. And she said, what am I supposed to do? My son's a hardworking man and we literally can't afford to get him to work anymore. And this is where it really boils my blood when I hear um, very well-to-do folks, I think, who only live a hyper-urban life simply say, oh, well, you know, buy an electric car or take Skytrain. I'm sorry, but my pipe fitter guy that whose mom just called me from Chilliwack can't take Skytrain to his job site. And he sure as heck can't afford an electric car that he'd have to wait three years for. This is affecting real people and it's brutalizing them.
0: Well, and I'll give you one more reason uh, so I can at least try and make the day of people living in Alberta. Uh, actually other provinces too, except for British Columbia, is keep in mind, while the carbon tax was introduced in British Columbia in 2008, it was by legislation supposed to be fully refundable. So if the government collected a billion somehow in tax reductions for business and individuals, it was reduced. Well, that has been eliminated completely by the the government in British Columbia right now. Mm -hmm. Other than the lowest income people who get a rebate, The vast majority of people don't even get that rebate, you know, whether it's inadequate or not. It's inadequate when it's zero. So as the carbon tax keeps rising here, then B.C. residents are going to be at the biggest disadvantage, uh, you know, of the rest of the country. And I still can't believe that's not an issue because that was absolutely contrary to the rationale of the carbon taxes was to give people a choice, but have the least disruption economically, which taxes always disrupt economically. As and, these and as these gas taxes, so as man, you're going to be really happy you live there. <laughs>
1: I, I, I am, and to your point, two things. One, um, they let they let the crocodile into the house. They never should have done it. So all the best intentions in the world, the moment you start uh, taxing something that is inelastic as energy demand, um, you're going to screw people over, which is exactly what's happening in British Columbia. They take over $2 billion from people in that every year. To your point on the rebates, a two-person working family in British Columbia gets zero rebate the moment they earn more than $59,000 a year. The average median two-person working income is $84,000 a year. So average people are getting jack in British Columbia back in a rebate. And two, um, on Alberta's side of things, they did the right thing back in the spring. Uh, credit where it's due to Premier Jason Kenney at the time. He saw what was happening with inflation. He saw what was happening with the carbon tax. And they completely removed, temporarily, unfortunately, the $0.13 per litre provincial excise tax and we had it gone all summer. Now, we're taking issue with them because unfortunately, as of October 1st, because technically the price of oil dropped on the international market below a certain margin. So they, they tacked an extra four and a half cents back onto it in the provincial tax. And we're now pleading with the provincial government saying, folks, now is not the time. People can literally barely afford ground beef. Yeah, inflation is at a 40-year high. Don't do this now. But to its credit, it did initially cut it, 13 cents a liter.
0: Well, in BC, they're still trying to roll out that $110 uh, for people who've insured their cars. But that's two fill-ups for an average car. That's it. You're done. And And this is where
1: I just need to appeal to the folks um, who would have voted NDP, say, 20 years ago. You know, I get it. I hear what you're saying, that um, used to be the party, at least ostensibly, about the working man. And a guy named John Horgan, back when he used to be in the opposition benches, remember this? Remember when he used to rail against the carbon tax when it was four and a half cents a litre? He did. He said that yeah. it would cost people too much to drive to work and heat their homes. And back then, the leader of the NDP called, uh, called the carbon tax lipstick on a pig. They railed against it. And now, now when you combine, he's got two carbon taxes now in that province. When you combine that, it's around twenty-eight cents a liter, just in the two BC carbon taxes, with no rebates for any normal working person. It's it's really awful.
0: Well, on the other side of this too, uh, you know, additionally, of course, it's everything gets transported, and whether it's uh, gasoline or diesel, uh, jet fuel, all of that, a train, uh, also, uh, everything has gone up. And this just compounds the problem. And I just, uh, as I say, you guys have done a fabulous job in making sure that people understood. Hey, and, and some people, Chris, are thrilled that the price of gasoline is up. Why? Because they think it'll reduce consumption, thereby reducing emissions. So let's, I, I'm saying there's a group out there who thinks this is just fine stuff. But I'm saying for the nor a lot of people, I think more people are upset, but wait till they see it transfer into other cost increases because things are transported.
1: Yeah, exactly. Um, You make a great point there. Uh, Folks who are listening, look around you right now, wherever you are, if you're in the kitchen, if you're driving, whatever. Everything around you was brought to you on a truck and probably on a train before that. Both of those modes of massive transportation use diesel. Diesel has a carbon tax on it. OK, so when you go to buy something, this is the layering effect that we're talking about quite often when it comes to creating energy poverty. Um, you're paying it on your home heating through the nose, whether you're using natural gas, propane or, or furnace oil. You're paying it at the grocery store, both for all that stuff that was trucked to you and to pay the overhead of the store to run to run their appliances on natural gas. And you're paying it to even get there. And this is what's causing this compounding layering effect of taxation on something as inelastic and as important as energy. And so for the folks who are sitting there cheering, um, I don't think you'll be cheering much longer after we see what happens in Europe this winter, unfortunately, when we see what happens when energy is completely unaffordable or inaccessible for people. You know, we, we don't need to live like this. You know, emissions in British Columbia keep on going up anyway, even though they have the highest carbon taxes in North America. There's other ways to battle emissions. We can use our brains and technology and sell things like clean burning natural gas to places like India and actually reduce global emissions. Work on the big end of the arithmetic. We don't need to cause people like that lady in Chilliwack such hardship.
0: Great stuff as always. Uh, Chris Sims is the Alberta Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, but my point is go to taxpayer.com. Tons of information like this. It's our cost of living. You should be aware of it. I appreciate some people are happy. Most aren't, but you got to get the facts. Chris, thanks for presenting them.
1: Thank you so much. Hang in there.
0: Time now for the quote of the week, and this one from the year 1871 from a book Uh, I'll bet that most of us has at least heard of, but let me start with a shocking stat, and that is 6.64 billion. That's the number of smartphones in the world, serves nearly 84% of the global population. And along with that, many have noted that it's an unprecedented opportunity to spread both information, misinformation, and political narratives. Although what's rarely noted by those same people who are concerned about misinformation is how much of it comes from government and its institutions. But, you know, I think most of us do understand that we don't get the straight goods on a huge array of subjects. Uh, Recent examples like COVID or the efficacy of vaccines, which, by the way, I have had three shots. Going to get a fourth soon. Or the war in Ukraine, Uh, the terrorist attacks on both Nordstrom 1 and 2. I mean, and now with big media and social media proven and admitted by Mark Zuckerberg to be complicit. But I think only the most docile would think that we've got all the facts that government has available. But my point in the context of the quote of the week is that hijacking the language to promote a specific narrative for political and commercial goals, it has a long history and is one of the pillars, by the way, of propaganda or in today's vernacular, it's the pillars of spin. So many examples where controlling the words has resulted in controlling the narrative. Uh, One glaring example is how the political left has taken the word progressive with their support of increased government. Censorship is obviously not a progressive position, but they still claim it. Meanwhile, opponents are increasingly successful in making the word woke, first used by activists to promote awareness of persistent racial and social injustice, but now it applies to the entire progressive agenda. But now increasingly, opponents have made it a derogatory description, similar to the word liberal, is seen now by many as a pejorative, while the left brands anybody who strays from their prevailing narrative as extreme right, or the current ultimate insult, Trump-like. My point is that we should be aware that the manipulation of language is a primary tool to manipulate us and control the political, social, and or commercial narrative. But as I said, it's not new which brings me to the quote of the week from 1871 by Lewis Carroll in Through the Looking Glass. That's the sequel, by the way, to Alice in Wonderland. In quotes, from Humpty Dumpty, when I use a word, it means just what I choose it to mean, neither more or less. The question is, said Alice, whether you can make words mean so many different things. The question, said Humpty Dumpty, which is the master? That's all. And the master today? It's not the word, but who decides its meaning. I'm going to bring in Mike Levy right now. I'm sure his head is spinning. I mean, aren't all of us feeling that way, depending on what markets you're looking at? But there's, you know, the old cliche, we are living in interesting times, Mike. I mean, it is incredible when I walk some of the movements in various markets.
2: Well, it is incredible, Mike, as far as I'm concerned. And then I have somebody who I know very well, who's very tuned into the markets. And midweek this past week, he's telling me that, you know what, I'm going to start taking some new positions in this market. And I'm looking at it, he says to me and says, "Um, it looks like we could have some bottoming action here. Well, I'm scratching my head. I'm scratching my head.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, isn't that the debate? I mean, all the way along, though, unfortunately, you could have been told that sometime in late June after the first down move, told it in the second down move. Uh, I think it comes back to, I don't have a crystal ball, so it comes back to what risks people are preparing to take. But I want to make sure they understand there are risks out there. I mean, my gosh, what happened last week in the UK when, as Victor was describing, we had the Bank of England being in quantitative tightening, in other words, removing liquidity from the system, they're no longer buying bonds. It took about 10 minutes to complete reversal, you know, and now they're buying. Why? Because they were looking at literally a crash in the the pension system because of the leverage there. You know, interest rates go up. The value of your bonds go down. If you've borrowed for those bonds, you're in real trouble. That's the environment we're in. And, you know, and and again, I can't tell someone to be aggressive or not aggressive, but I will say, understand there's a ton of risk, financial risk in the
2: system right now there is and there was turmoil in britain because the pension funds are tied into the government more so than you see in other countries so uh, the, the 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 government action uh, with the new prime minister and what she was planning on doing just threw the market into turmoil but not only in britain that affected the bond markets all over the world and there are pension problems that are going to start to creep up again so it's not just designated to one place Mike, it's universal. And we saw the stock market move universally. We saw risk on, as they call it, gold moved. The US dollar came down, foreign currencies, the Canadian dollar went up. I mean, it's
0: dizzying. Yeah, your point's well taken. It seems to be concerted across the world. But again, let's be clear, if people aren't familiar, what happened is that, of course, the losses were building in the UK pension funds. So the Bank of England jumps in, and starts purchasing bonds, so they don't go down further. But of course, it was because the government promised, you know, huge amounts of money in their bailout, which everyone knew was borrowed. You know, that's inflationary. a in a country that's got inflation that is estimated to get as high as 13 14% coming up. Well, even more inflation, who the heck wants a bond? That's something I hope everyone understands. Nobody wants a bond that's paying 3 or 4% if they perceive that inflation is going to run double digits. Well, all of a sudden, they are bailing out of the bond market. Huge losses in the bonds. As interest rates go up, the value of the bond goes down. I mean, this is the calamity that every government is facing right now. Uh, and that is the underlying, I think, one of the underlying reasons why the Federal Reserve Bank of Canada don't want inflation to keep running ahead because they know the system is built on borrowing, built on sovereign debt, They cannot have higher interest rates because all their holdings of anyone with a bond goes down in value.
2: And you make a very good point. Sovereign debt, whether it's first world countries like Australia, New Zealand, Canada, Japan, the United States, and the list goes on. Well, Mike, if we have to pay debt or interest on debt in Canada, our Canadian dollar is taken worldwide. Aussie dollar is, New Zealand dollar is, Japanese yen is, all the euro currencies are. But you take some of the third world countries who have debt denominated in U.S. dollars and interest rates are going up and they can't afford to make their debt payments. Well, that's compounding all the other problems that are out there. It's all based on one thing right now, as far as I'm concerned, is inflation, central banks tightening and the ability then to live with the tightening, whether you're a first world nation, third world nation, whether you're in the stock market, whether you're buying gold. Did you see gold this early in the week? All of a sudden, risk on, gold's up. Risk on, commodities are up. Risk on, the stock market the first few days of the week just took off to the upside.
0: Yeah, and just just a couple things. There's about $9 U.S. denominated dollars that third world are holding. So their currency just went down. So the cost of those loans has gone explosively, Uh, but on the risk-on thing, it's just risk-on in terms of hey, we're worried about inflation, you know, and so I want to get an inflation hedge. So gold, yes, I I agree, and silver also got a big bid. One day it was up eight percent. You know, there is somebody saying, and again, I still don't think it's the big move at all, but they are saying, hey, with inflation. I'm searching around for something that protects me. I'm getting out of stuff that I feel is risky. And then there's the other big one that we, the big fly in the ointment or fly in the, is that, man, we got to be careful. I need money. I'm going to sell and raise capital. I'm going to sell a U.S. treasury, by the way, to raise capital. So it's
2: all of these factors coming together. And, and this friend of mine, you know, you just reminded me uh, talking to the people that he talks to, you you know, talk to your financial advisor He's talking to my friend about selling treasuries in order to free up some cash. But just one more little anecdote, Mike, is I was talking to Rob over at Border Gold. When that move happened with gold the beginning of the week, risk on, people are buying gold. All of a sudden, people are buying gold. So they wanted to buy equities. They wanted to buy gold. They wanted to buy commodities. And it's just you shake your head, and if your head was on a swivel, It would just be turning around.
0: Yeah, absolutely. But I think that's the story we're going to be having. I mean, the big question I see is, can central banks continue to raise rates without crashing the system? The UK said no last week. Let's be clear. The Bank of England said, no, we can't continue to raise rates because we
2: will crash the system. Hence, they stepped in to keep rates down. So your friend, as a final little anecdote, Bill Dudley, who's a former uh, Fed governor, uh, he said, and I quote, so far there hasn't been any real bad surprises.
0: How- <laughs> I-,
2: I can tell you of a lot of people that might disagree this yeah. week with Bill Dudley.
0: I-, I couldn't agree more, especially, I know I, I read the same quote, went, say what? Look at that pension <laughs> problem. I think it was a bit of a surprise. Mike, thanks for taking the time. Have a great week. You too, Mike. Always love getting the chance to talk to one of the top market timers literally in the English speaking world. He's one timers digest timer of the year. Uh, he's won gold market timer of the year. Uh, the list is a long one. I'm not going to go into it because I want to have time to interview Mark Liebavitt of VR Trader, vrtrader.com. Mark, great to get a chance. And I want to start with big picture stuff right now and then we can get in of course you do trading services. You get excuse me, people in, out, all around, but I want to get your broad market. You know, you start the year with, your take taking what you expect to see. Tell us where we're at at this point. Okay, we started the year um, when we did the World Outlook Conference. I
3: put up my annual forecast for the Dow and it was like straight down to the right, you know, 45 degree angle. Just said this was going to be a bear year. And that's pretty much, as you know, has unfolded. And uh, we're still in that bear phase uh, big picture until we get a reversal of that cyclical and pattern and volume pattern you know we have to be cautious and we've broken a lot of key levels here volume to the downside and you know, we could talk about geopolitical geocosmic all kinds of other factors but uh the charts say we're down and um that's sort of the big picture view you know near term you know we're running into the fourth quarter they say October is the "quote unquote" bear killer, where you can get rallies into year end, but it could come from a lower level as we're speaking here uh, on October seventh. Market is in a downtrend, and we have a little cycle change point due next week, so maybe we'll wash out and hit some type of October trading low. My forecast model that I referred to a moment ago actually showed the low the end of October, early November, and that was for trade trading purposes. You know, a bounce. You know, we could. Drop five hundred points in the S and P and come back five hundred points. It doesn't mean a bull market is starting, but that's sort of where we're at. We're in a bear, and until we sit, see otherwise, that's the case.
0: But this perspective is very important, and that's why I'm always talking about what's your time frame. You know, people ask a question. My my answer is, what's your time frame? As you said, you can have a, a major trend. In this case, it's a downtrend, but within that trend, you can get bounces. So, I mean, look at the bounce we had on Tuesday and I guess into Wednesday. Uh, You know, it was unbelievable. Well, unbelievable is not the right word, but we're in an era of volatility. It was certainly powerful. But to me, and now it looks like a good idea. I didn't think that had changed the trend. You know, the major trend still down. But as you say, Mark, within that trend, you can get a lot of counter trend moves. But not only that, I mean, money can be made just sitting in some inverse
3: ETFs. I mean, if this is a bear market, we should be, you know, stocks drop faster than they go up. I mean, how many 500, 600-point up days do we get in the TSX or the uh, S&P or the Dow? Very rare, of course. So just... uh, Holding inverse ETFs. I have them in my newsletter. We're long them now. We're doing good with them. We trade them a little bit. But, you know, if this goes on for two years and the Dow is going another two, 3,000 points lower, I mean, what's wrong with that? Unfortunately, the average investor is buy-side oriented, and that's the problem. And, you know, bear markets are more fun for uh, bearish traders. I mean, they drop faster and buy an ETF that's an inverse don't or or sit in cash. But I think ETFs is the way to go.
0: Okay, so let's, and there's so many aspects, and people should know that you cover just a huge array of things within the market, whether it's the bond market, whether it's currencies, whether it's uh, the precious metals, uh, the oil market. You know, the list is a long one. That's why you're always such an easy interview, Mark, because I don't have to think of anything because I'm just interested in every one of those categories. Right, right. right, (laughs) Yeah. So let's talk interest rates then for a couple of minutes or the bond market. I know Victor and I have been fond of saying, Man, look at the losses that are getting accumulated everywhere. I mean, in Europe, uh, you know, of course, uh, in the U.S. bond market, Canadian bond market. What are you showing there? Well, rates are going to continue to rise until they get above the inflation
3: rate. That's sort of the rule of thumb. I mean, the inflation rate, what's that? They say at 8.5%. I think it's going to go higher than that, particularly if uh, the European war situation gets you know, progresses worse, and uh, so you know, we're not even near where rates should be. I mean, we should have Fed fund rates now eight and a half percent just to meet the inflation rate. And if, if, God forbid, but it could happen, we could meet that 1980 target of 20 percent in the Fed funds rate. That's a possibility. We can't discount that. Depends on. You know, all kinds of crazy things. You know, what if Powell is kicked out next year, new legisl- new administration comes in, you know, and you get a more uh, dovish Fed uh, chair. You know, things could change, but I'm thinking rates are going up and inflation is going to continue strong and there's not much the Fed can do about it. They're, they're only a pe- small piece of the puzzle. You know, we know that.
0: But so, it, I mean, it says, that says to me, if if I'm a, an investor or a trader, I'm looking to play bonds to go down in price, right? Rates go up, bonds, prices go down. I'm looking for that. If I'm not sort of into that, then I'm just making sure my, my borrowing is on a fixed rate. You know, I'm not letting it float out there because as you said, I mean, we can look at the past and you say, okay, and then you can assign a probability, but you look at the past and go, you know it's, it's it's guys like me who go i'm old enough to remember when you know i'm like that old guy we used to laugh at right. but i am old enough to remember when uh you know rates were you know mortgage rates were 14 15 percent uh gosh you could get what was called a canada savings bond mark and i remember i i think the top was 19 percent
3: yeah I, I bought one myself not canadian the us i think it was 16 or 17 percent back then yeah. <laughs> dating myself as well. It's too bad we don't get those kind of rates. You can live off that kind of income.
0: <laughs> no kidding. But but again, it just gives you, you know, that's, again, then you assign a probability that gets to the high. You know, we can say just, I think what's happened, we've got so many moves that are beyond our imagination. You know, I, I, I said to a wonderful group, Verico Financial, about two weeks ago, and I said, Come on, if we were here in February, would you have bet me that the Bank of Canada rate would go up 1300% in seven months? You know, I mean, we have to just notice the environment we're in.
3: Well, it's, it's an exciting one, though, because, you know, I've always joked for years that, you know, uh, what if the market, I can't make money in the market and I'm going to have to leave the market and go work for the post office or something. I've I've, I've saying this for 40 years and the market always provides opportunity, you know, whether it's marijuana stocks or gold or the buying inverse ETFs, we always find a vehicle to trade. It, it, it's the horses coming out of the
0: gate every morning, uh, Michael, you know. <laughs> well, you, you mentioned gold and I was going to come to it, so I'm going to throw it in right now. I, I think there's a sort of a... Now, again, we have to be careful. We're going to, we're about to talk gold in U.S. dollar terms. Correct. If we were talking gold in Great Britain, talking gold in, uh, in Japan, let alone or every emerging market country who think they've been in a raging bull market, but right. let's stick to just gold in... Uh, U.S. dollar terms.
3: Okay, um, I'm somewhat bearish. I, I hold a core position, but I've been trading some of the inverse ETFs for gold and gold shares as a hedge in and out. And I guess I should have kept them on because gold market's been going all over the place here in the last week or so. But uh, I still think it's going lower. Um, I have a potential. I think they're going to take out the March uh, 2020 lows in the uh, indexes. So GDX, you know, GDXJ, the gold etfs for stocks i think are going to challenge or break their march 20 lows which are you know quite a bit below where we're at now 30 40 percent lower so uh, i'm a little bit of a bear and uh, the u.s dollar remains strong and uh you know until you know i I, my guess is sometime in the next six months we'll see a nice bottom in gold and uh that might be coincident with a a little break in the u.s dollar but for now you've got to be careful it's not in an uptrend it's still in a downtrend and that's the bottom line. So if I had to give you a number, 1,500, 1,478 in, in gold, U.S., I, don't, I think silver is stronger on a relative basis for, because of the solar connection, you know, solar industry connection. Uh, the low back then was $12. I don't think silver will get back down there. But um, you know, gold gets around that 1,500 level, I think we're probably going to see a, a big buying opportunity.
0: I think what's difficult, and, and and this is an advantage of age, seriously, is that you know I clearly remember uh, the nineteen you know eighty kind of market debacle there, you know, and what I'm saying is that we got used to when there's a, a debt related liquidation going on, which is what we're experiencing. Man, prices can move. As simple as that, they can really, you know, sort of surprise people on the downside, and and that's why I'm always. You know, Victor and I talk risk protection all the time, you know, we're boring, but it's, a, it's important, you know, as, or as you say, Mark, you play the market in both directions, the market tells you which direction it's going. And, you know, so you're not held, you know, you're, you don't have that bullish bias. I mean, it's whatever the market's providing unfortunately most analysts
3: do I watch all the financial networks and radio and so forth and say what can we buy now what can you know what can we do long you know honestly if you're in cash and in- inverse ETFs and did nothing else until the market turned you're probably safer than anything else but there has been strength in some sectors for example among some oil stocks here which have uh, bounced up a little bit uh, Biden came out with that that uh, criminalization notice the other day for marijuana in the U S and suddenly the marijuana stocks pop up though they've settled back here the last 24 hours. So there's always something going on, but, uh, the moment, uh, you know, we shouldn't be too negative because at some point here, we're going to get a low here, whether it's uh, Monday, Tuesday, or into early November, and you're going to get one heck of a technical rally and what's going to trigger that. I don't know. Maybe it's the outcome of the U S midterm elections. Maybe there's some other variable. And then, uh, you know, nice tradable bounce is coming here, but uh, you know, just wait, wait for the signal.
0: What are your numbers telling you about oil? I mean, that's obviously uh, you know top of the charts right now. What's going on with the oil prices? People are watching and had a great week, you know, <laughs> right. since Monday.
3: Well, they, top, they topped out uh, and you know we had a big correction and now we're in a technical rally here in the oil market. I mean, I have a personal prejudice looking at big picture charts, thinking crude oil is going back to 140, 150, even 200 at some point in the future because of the stupidity of the, you know, the Democrats here in the U.S. and restriction of production of oil and world demand for it. So I think big picture, we're going a lot higher. Right now, as we're speaking, we're at a little resistance level in crude oil on a technical bounce from the recent sell-off. I'm I'm still long these oil stocks like Occidental Petroleum and so forth, Pioneer. I'm still long a few here, but I'm a little nervous that we're hitting a little resistance here on the chart. So I'll know early next week whether I need to take a trade in those or just stick with them.
0: Uh, Interesting about uh, counter-trend moves. I mean, as you say, there are sort of spots uh, that are going up and the majority down. But one one market that you've been following very closely made a lot of money for your subscribers. And I'm going back, you know, off the top of my head about three years. uh, I remember at the World Outlook Conference, you had a list of solar panel producers, solar energy companies, and did unbelievably well. But then you got out of them. So I, I, I...
3: for solar was a big big mover FSLR unbelievable yeah I went from what 60 to 140 you know uh yeah you know the government is supporting them they have the legislation that uh Inflation Protection Act which is a bunch of nonsense it's not inflation protection but a lot of it a lot of money of, of that funding is siphons into the uh solar company so that was a reason for their their strength. Big big supporter of solar, but I'm in the camp that it's not going to solve our other problems. It's just one investment of many in alternate energy.
0: But where are we at with solar stocks right now? I mean, have they had their move? They had their retraction? Are they running anything counter to what the overall market trends are? They have been running
3: counter-trend. There have been some days where a stock like First Solar is up when the market's down to hundreds of points. So I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt. They're extended you know, if you're, you know, on a trading basis, uh, I'm not in this second we took some profits. I still like them and I would look to get back in as a play when the market has this big technical rally, which is coming, you know, next few weeks. And I would su- suggest they would participate a little
0: bit more as they were showing relative strength all along. Is this market more? I mean, this is always currency bias or recency bias rather. Excuse me, recency bias. And, uh, you know, so I look and I go. I know markets have been volatile. We've been chronicling that in money talks for years. But it just seems as I guess I was surprised by the power of the moves that we see in up and down in certain areas. I, and love I just it. Wondered, I love it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you do. <laughs> yeah. VR trader and the, and the other newsletters, uh, you know, platinum letter, uh, uh, the metals resource letter that you've got, cannabis letter. Yeah, I mean, it's the old, may we be blessed to live in interesting times. I, I don't know if I can stand much more interest <laughs> going on at this point.
3: Well, I, I don't know I, I, a lot of my clients, you know, come from trading backgrounds and, uh, you know, be our trader and, you know, uh, you know they, they sort of look forward to, you know, these quick moves in both directions. I don't catch them all by any stretch, but uh, volatility is how we make money. You know, and in the old days, when I first published my letter in the 70s and 80s, things were slow as a snail. You know what I mean? A 30-point up day in the Dow was like historical. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So, oh, uh, I sure do. When I, yeah. when I entered the business, we were dating ourselves too. I think four to six million shares a day was trading on the New York Stock Exchange. I mean, nobody believes that it was that little back in 1969-70 when I first got started. But uh, anyway, the long and short of it is, I don't know what to say, investors, you know, have to protect themselves. We're in a bear market. They should be protective. I don't like telling people to sit and hold when I think the trend is down. But obviously there have been some stocks and sectors that have done okay. Like you mentioned solar and so forth and oil. So um, I guess diversification. I mean, I'm sort of guilty of that myself because I do own a few oil stocks, even though I'm bearish. And I own a couple of marijuana stocks, even though I'm bearish. So, But I think I overcome that by playing the indexes, the inverse indexes, and when the market's down a 1,000 points, at least I'm ringing the register on a strong area in the market, which is unfortunately now in a downtrend.
0: Well, as you say, there's, I do, now look, we're not making, uh, we're not recommending because we don't know everybody's specifics, but just give us, if you were playing the Dow to go down, or, you know, the S&P to go down, can you give us a couple of the ETFs that you use to do that you know yeah, to play so it, conservative to
3: go ones is ones that are go one-to-one with the index so they're not very volatile in other words a 10 percent move is only a 10 percent move in that index but the two that I favor there's ones that are leveraged two and three times but the one I use is sh ticker it's on the New York Exchange, sh which is the inverse etf for the S&P and dog dog for the Dow Industrials and that's it you just buy those two. I think one is to $15 a share and the other is $30 a share. So you just don't buy them and as yeah. if you're playing the trend and that's it. I'm I'm long both of them and you know maybe we'll trade out of a Monday or Tuesday or between then and early November and reverse to a long ETF, you know, but that's where we're at.
0: And as I say, people consult uh, with your investment professional to see where that fits in your portfolio, et cetera. Mark, one more thing before I let you go. Uh, U.S. dollar. I mean, obviously, that's also one of the really big stories in the world of finance, and that is the strength. I'm just asking, do your charts show you anything uh, of weakness? Because it's one of those things, you know, and you, do, you can do this on the way down, too. Uh, we saw it on the way up with a lot of those uh, ARC Innovation Fund stocks. You know, where you go, how far can this go? Well, I think that's the question, people looking at the U.S. dollar. And I'm talking, you know, sort of a not, not some sort of minor two-day move, but are you seeing any weakness at all in the chart at this point?
3: Well, I'm looking at the chart now as we're talking. I mean, it, it's getting awfully extended. I mean, we've had a huge move here. And, uh If we're going to revert to the mean, which is the quote unquote expression, we're so far above the moving averages on the charts that, yes, you know, we're getting to a point where we have to start looking over our shoulder a little bit. It is quite extended, but it can get it can go higher between now and early November or into next week. And then uh, that'll be your little trading point. But that may not change the trend. You just might have a shake in the dollar. Gold goes up, stocks go up, everybody gets excited, year-end rally or beginning of bull market, they get trapped again, and it's a trade. So we'll have to monitor how that unfolds when it does. So uh, yeah, that could happen. Dollar pulls back and market takes off and uh, everybody gets excited about a bull market again.
0: And the good, And the good news here is that you can follow with Mark VRtrader.com, but uh, our offices has talked to Mark's office. He never knows about this stuff, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> mm-hmm. But we, uh, they're very kind. They say for five dollars. are you here Did you hear that? For five dollars, you can get a one month trial and you can get his cannabis letter. It's $25. $25. Michael, it's $25, $25, sorry, $25 is a cannabis right. letter, the VR trader letter, or you can choose to get the platinum letter, uh, the metal resource letter, which I've looked at a 1000 times market timing letter, it's kind of the stuff I've been asking Mark today, but for $25, you can get a one month trial to see, you know, try it out. And at the end of that month, if you, they will offer another trial at a reduced price, you know, uh, longer trial. And uh, so I think it's just a great opportunity to keep up to date on what Mark's thinking, what his team is thinking, uh, and his proprietary timing models on a variety of indexes. So, Mark, uh, thank your office for that. You. <laughs> <laughs> or you can fire them, but we love them. So <laughs> great stuff, Mark Leave, But thank you for finding time.
3: My pleasure. Look forward to seeing you in February, Michael, too.
0: At the absolutely at the world outlook conference but a reminder go to mikesmoneytalks.ca mikesmoneytalks.ca you can look right there everything i just said about the $25 free tri- or $25 trial for the variety of five different letters uh, with mark are available to you right there mikesmoneytalks.ca Let's get Ozzy Jurek in here. We just got the latest numbers, uh, you know, on what's been happening in the real estate market. I wanted to get a lowdown on that because there's a couple of big messages, Ozzy. I would suspect looking at least if you're looking at the major markets of Toronto, Vancouver, well, obviously, as we've been chronicling, a huge decline
4: in volumes. Yeah, no question. And Mike, the thing is, there's so many, so many numbers in the press out there that that leave me bewildered, you know, because... Of course, the the, the old story is, you know, there's statistics, there's damn statistics, and then there are lies, right? And we don't know what numbers we're getting, because I see in the paper that, for instance, in Toronto, the average uh, price year over year went down 10 percent. Well, so you say, well, that's not too bad. But then when you take a look at what prices were in February and then measure them against this September, rather than September was September, and you see the average price in the 416 area in Toronto was 2074000 now it's a million five eighty six wow that's sort of a right between your eyes and that's down 31 percent. so by look, by quoting one number over year over year which is relatively meaningless also the in toronto i saw that on 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 youtube that they're saying the price uh, the volume is down uh, uh, by by eight percent august over september like they always pick the numbers that really Look better. But the reality is in nine oh five area quote the price was a million seven two seven. Now it's a million three ten. That's also thirty-two percent. So all the whole Greater Toronto area has seen a massive price decline just in the last six months.
0: You know, Ozzy, I'm thinking i going to just get this as a tattoo because I continue to quote JP right. Morgan as I did last week in the editorial, is that you know, this is for people who think they can ignore what's going on, because this is a direct result of policy, you know, and the Bank of Canada sitting there going, they are not surprised one iota that when they have the fastest increase, not the highest, but the fastest increase in just seven months, well, they're not surprised that the housing market came to a a stop, because that's probably the most interest rate sensitive area, along with some other consumers. But number one, when you talk about the value to the economy. So yeah, it's come to a A near halt. And they're not surprised. I think one of the better things you and I chatted about going back several months, is I said, that their goal was to shock the system. Well, they've shocked it. When you see numbers like you've just reported, they have shocked the system. But it's, of course, not just Toronto. But of course, that was the dominant market along with Vancouver. But Vancouver is not faring much better.
4: No, that's true. And by the way, Toronto at the same time used to have a a decline in active listings in February of 20 percent. And now the increase in active listings is 47 percent. So clearly on both fronts. Well, first of all, if you went to Edmonton, uh, prices are down from 493 to 463 in the last seven months. And Calgary, the bright shining star, still up year over year by 5 percent, but it's also coming down. But the listings are still down 21 percent. So Calgary seems to be a little bit better in balance. Come to yeah, but I would ago.
0: say, sorry to interrupt, but I would say that that's the energy story, you know, yes. uh, right there, that the energy market is at least stopping uh, some of the fear because the energy market's very positive in terms of employment, it's uh, record production, etc. So that's just interesting uh, that I, I say that the energy market's going to help save the federal budget because the revenues have gone up. Well, they've already done that in Alberta, but uh, I'm just saying it's also helps at least on the... Uh, you know in the real estate market side but again uh, they don't have any such luck going on in vancouver
4: well no and then the, of course uh, you vancouver was 2.3 million average price in february now it's 2.1 million it's only down nine percent in price but the condo condos were from 846 to 750 that's down 12 percent in the fraser valley and we talked about it every single month the high in february was a million nine now it's a million four that's a 25 percent decline in a single family home and condos are down 16%. At the same time, the astounding sales, single family sales are down a whopping 57% and uh, condos sales
0: are down 50. Sorry, think about the drop though, as you just said in the Fraser Valley, you know, how much, let us and I'm talking, this is a worst case, because let's say you bought in January, February, March, you know, so it's a worst case scenario I'm presenting here, but still, let's say you put 400 grand down, you know, and then mortgage the yeah. rest. First of all, you'd get a better mortgage rate than they're seeing today. That's good news. But the bad news is they've lost their entire down payment if they were forced to sell. I mean, I'm just saying these are big. big. Even when you say 16 or 25 percent or 12 percent, we're talking hundreds of thousands of dollars. And people's net worth have just evaporated.
4: Now, I I do believe, and and I'm on record at saying so uh, at our conferences, but that eventually we're gonna be higher again. And and for me this four hundred thousand decline, remember it was only a million dollars in two thousand nineteen. Then we went to a million nine. Did we really expect it to go up four hundred fifty thousand a year? Every year there had to be a reversal and we we're there and it's probably a good thing. But it's a massive reversal. You can't say it's eight percent down over August and leave it at that. You have to have an explanation that the market is definitely a bias market and people are spooked. But again, what you're looking at, especially is the volume going
0: forward, I mean, the, the number of listings going forward is a key component to where that, how that market's going to perform. Uh, you know, it's interesting, though. Uh, I, 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 I'm not so convinced it's a good thing, by the way, if I'm the guy who's got a reduction in my house. <laughs> I understand exactly what you're saying when you're talking overall market. It becomes to a more sustainable re- uh, level. And your point's so well taken. You know, I talked to a lot of people in that business as you talked to more, but Come on, no one really thought it was going to continue at that pace. You know, so they yeah. shouldn't be surprised that we've had it come up. no different than we see it in the stock market, no different than we've seen it in, in the, anything, uh, non-fungible tokens. So anything that goes straight up kind of has a, a bit of a day of reckoning, but there's more underlying value with people moving into the country in the real estate market.
4: That's why at Osbus, that's what I do. I look at the highs in, in the numbers, and that's why we set the highs in place in February in our view. And then it comes down. It's it's to me it's part of part of our world. You go from seventy thousand to two million over thirty years. Uh, there were some gaps in between when timing was important, and one of those timing times is now.
0: Okay, let me just leave with one thing, and it's a bigger subject, so I uh, forgive me for being brief with this, though. But you've got governments, of course, have been weighing in on the housing issue for years talking about affordability, which I think we've exposed that myth to the degree to which governments actually increase the cost of housing. But now I was just seeing out in British Columbia, for example, as an example, there's other examples throughout the country, but the government there is saying, okay, let's try and help the housing market. But what would be the main criteria you'd evaluate any program by any government of any stripe?
4: Did you add a new well, new new unit into the marketplace? What are we building? What what are, are we adding the supply? We certainly have a supply of people coming to the province, but we don't seem to in any solutions. And I'm looking just at at the proposals that uh, one of the, uh, the the fellows that's running for government is making and. For instance, a tax on flippers. Mike, that horse has left the barn. You know, when prices are <laughs> down 25%, who are you going to tax? You know, it, yeah. it, it sounds good. We're going to get after these terrible flippers. Well, there's no flippers left, I'm telling you. There's not overriding municipal authority. That sounds on the face of it pretty good. In fact, probably all developers want uh, a faster approval pro- process. But now, if he, if I just can appeal to the province, and then the investor could have a multifamily permit fast track over the objection of City Hall and the neighbors. I don't know whether that really is a solution or just something thrown out in the wind. And finally, the blanket triplex zoning. I mean, you can put an extra two suites in every house in British Columbia. Well, if the average house is a million dollars, I was talking to Frank O'Brien, the editor of Western Investor, who has a great story on this. but. The average house at a million dollars, you add three suites in it and you, you increase the value of that house probably by 30 percent. So that didn't do the job either. And then finally they want to say, okay, any, any starter council that forbids a rental in their building will not be allowed to do that. Well, who are they attacking here? The investor was never going to buy that unit anyways because he couldn't rent it. Now that he can, maybe he will buy it and maybe pay more for it. <laughs>
0: But, but your point that sometimes it sounds a lot better than it will be in practice. I mean, who hasn't noticed that we never talk about losses in the real estate market? It's always people who didn't earn that money. They didn't earn the gain, you know, completely ignoring that they earned the money paid taxes to have a down payment to get in the market to pay maintenance, et cetera, property taxes. But I, I just I, I, I think your point's just beautiful there. That <laughs> They do stuff then we go, hey, that sounds right until you think about it for about 30 seconds.
4: Yeah. Well, we live in an interesting time and, and, uh, and, and maybe it shouldn't be too surprising because nothing seems to me make sense around the world right now.
0: <laughs> there you go. Ozzy, you go out and have a great week. And uh, I know there's plenty of stuff happening on your, your end. I appreciate you taking the time. And of course, ozbuzz.ca, ozbuzz.ca.
4: Yeah, our new OzBuzz uh, blog will be out on Sunday. So if you haven't signed up, go to OzBuzz.ca and then and sign up. And, and Mike, I want to leave you with this thought. It's, by, it's a gentleman by the name of Zach Galifianakis who says, I have a lot of growing up to do. I realized that the other day inside my fort.
0: <laughs> That's a great line, Zach Galifianakis, who does uh, Between Two Ferns. Ozzy, have a great week. And you too. You know, I think there's something to the fact that there's so much happening in the markets. And every week I get Victor Adair to bat cleanup for us because he watches them. Literally, it feels like about 24-7 to him, I'm sure. You know, he gets one day off a week because he starts on Sundays to look at what's going on in Asia. But the point being, there's a bigger message here. Uh, There's a very big message here about... When you see this much turmoil, this much chaos, this much volatility, it tells you big things are underlying the foundation of our economy and our investment markets, especially the credit side of things. So I want to bring Vic in right now. Vic, I guess uh, we kicked off the week pretty strongly with uh, OPEC saying, you know, we had the rumors on Monday, but then the announcement on Tuesday that, hey, guess what? We're going to reduce oil production. And of course, energy has been the big focus.
5: Yeah, if you just If we just look at WTI, I mean, we've rubbed around ninety-two dollars a barrel here going into the end of the week. That's a six-week high, and uh, that's up about sixteen dollars from last week's lows, which were the lowest prices we'd seen since the first week of January. So we've had a lot of we've got volatility all across markets. It's it's (laughs) there's nowhere to hide from volatility. Uh, Even cash it seems is volatile, but. Couple of stories there. Certainly, we made, uh, as I say, almost a year's low or ten-month low uh, last week, and then the the, the call it the uh, explosion on the. Nordstrom uh, Nordstrom uh, pipelines that give us a kick to the upside and markets knew that OPEC was going to be meeting this week the expectation was that they were going to be trying to cut back production they want prices up you know and it's really got a lot of play Biden has been obviously cranky with them for what they've done he's got the midterm elections one month away, and gasoline prices are back over $6 a barrel, uh, I should say a gallon, in uh, in California in particular. So, yeah, we got a lot of volatility there. The, the OPEC headline was a 2 million barrel a day cut. And as you and I know that a lot of the members weren't producing their quotas anyway. But anyway, you cut it. It's going to be at least a half a million barrels a day, less production and sales, and it's the, the headline message of they want to do what they can to get prices up, which kind of runs counter to uh, the central banks around the world that are trying to get inflation down. So, yeah, a lot of rock and roll.
0: Well, I, let me just throw this out. and it's, we, we can discuss it another time, but I thought the move by Saudi Arabia, which the White House themselves said, clearly showed they're aligned with Russia. I think this is also a bigger geopolitical game that we don't even like to think about. You know how this is escalating. Do you know what I mean? It's not a comfortable thought to think that the tensions in Ukraine, the tensions—that's a weak word—the war in Ukraine, the invasion of Ukraine, you know, and the ramifications there could get even worse. I think that's what two twenty-three holds for us. But I'll leave it at that. But I don't, i want people to note that 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 volatility continues. Uh, but again, the when you look inside the markets, I mean, the, the stock indexes. You know, I was talking to Mike Levy earlier. But it was kind of crazy. They, they came out of that, that announcement of a, a push up, didn't care at all. You know, I mean, Tuesday, Wednesday were massive up days.
5: Yeah, as we discussed here the last month or two, the only thing that really, really matters on the stock side is whether or not the Fed is done being aggressive and there were, we the stock indices closed up at last week right at the lows of uh i think 22 months or so for the the major indices and then we had a, a i mean not but you have to get this too we closed on those lows and like everybody in his dog is bearish and short so when we got a little spark and the market started to lift on sunday night and into monday i mean the dow jones rallied 1900 points from Friday's lows to let's call it Tuesday's close or the, the, the Wednesday overnight session, that's about a 6% pop and then we give it back. I mean, that's that kind of volatility. And when I look at different parts of it, I mean, I see Canadian bank st- stocks are weak. The real estate investment trusts are weak. You know, big cap tech is weak. You know, there's some pervasive weakness here in the stock market and it all goes to what's the Fed going to do? yeah it's
0: uh, fascinating the other thing though I just to remind people when you get that kind of an aggressive move off the bottom a lot of it could be as you say Vic short covering it's people who've been playing the market to go down and go Hey, you know what it's up a bit, maybe it's going to go further and I'm doing real well right now, so I'll lock that in. I'm a trader, so I'll lock in my profits by buying. So when I see those sharp moves after the kind of in the market environment we're in, I suspect some of that at least is people covering their positions that are meant to have the market go uh, down and they cover and get out and that can then okay, so the market then rallied as you say Vic 6% or something. Oh, well, let's get back in. Let's sell the market short again. So I'm just saying that volatility isn't helped by the abruptness of the moves. I think just gets exacerbated.
5: Well, there's there's a lot of very short-term money that moves around. And then people that with from a longer-term perspective, actually, let's go there for a second. You know, we've had the stock market down basically for nine months now. You and I have talked here a few times about the 60-40 portfolio that stocks and bonds, has had its worst year ever. I think the global number is a loss of about $35 trillion this year. And yet, we haven't seen what we would call retail throw in the towel. You know, now people are going to start opening their bank statements, or I shouldn't say their bank statements, but, you know, their, their brokerage statements, whatever, and, and seeing how they're doing. And they might phone up their broker and have a word, you know, say, Hey, what the hell are, you know, we are sticking with this or, and we'll see. But so far it seems that people are sticking with their money invested in the markets. Although I have to note here that the two year treasury yield in the United States is about 4.3%. That is a 15 year high. I mean, people have got used to getting nothing for having any money in your bank account. And that 4.3% yield on a two year Is almost four times the S and P five hundred dividend yield. So you might think some folks are going to go. You know, we had a great run in the stocks from the great financial crisis to now. Yeah, we we missed the top, but we can actually put some money safely aside in short term U.S. government treasuries here and do pretty well. Maybe, but they haven't yet.
0: Well, one one thing I just want to come back on what you're saying and. Uh, you know, obviously people who've got a lot of experience in the market understand it, but most of us don't. And that is the bond market trades like stocks. You know, you got buyers, you got sellers. Well, how about this? You were a buyer a year ago on a five year bond that paid you something like 1%, you know, and now it's paying you three and a half, four 4% in that range. Well, who the heck wants that one year bond, that five year bond you bought last year? So you've got to deeply discount it in order to sell it. My point only being the losses in the bond market are massive. In Europe, especially, on bank balance sheets, in pension funds. Uh, you know, Japan are, are working hard not to have that degree of loss, but they do have some. But Europe, I can't even imagine. I bought a bond and it was negative. Now I can get even 1% in Europe. That sounds a lot better. Or the US. I got barely a percent last year. I can get four percent this year. The bond market losses are huge. That's what I worry about: instability in the system. That's what we saw in Great Britain uh, just under two weeks ago with their pension funds. These are big stories. So when you just—it sounds easy to go, oh, that sixty forty bond portfolio, or you know, sorry, a pension portfolio is not doing so well. No, it, it has huge repercussions.
5: Absolutely. Well, the the thought is that. What did I say last week? It it was stress, that there's stress in the market. And the stress kind of comes from the expectation that something's going to break because we've jacked up interest rates so much so quickly. We had more than a couple of decades where people got used to the Fed was had your back. You know, that if things started to get a little shaky, they would throw money at the system. And now we've had a paradigm shift. It's not like that anymore. And we're having to adjust. I mean, we will adjust. You know, not, the lights aren't going like to all get turned off. But between now and the time we can get to something we feel comfortable with, we could say, it could be a rocky road.
0: And as you said, that rockiness is created by some people thinking the Fed's going to back off next weekend. Others saying they're not going to back off. You know, as you say, it all comes back to what central bank policy is. And, and and for me, it's also energy prices. So yeah, there's still more. It's like those old uh, 1950s, you know, you go to the movie theater and there was a serial and it said to be continued. Uh, and that's certainly the case with us, Vic. So thanks very much for finding time. And I'll just remind people to go to victoradare.ca. Have a look at what Vic's doing there. Have a look at the charts. It's incredibly illuminating. Good stuff. Thanks, Vic. Thanks, Mike. Time now for this week's Goofy Award. You know, Canada's relationship with the Communist Party of China is, let's say to say the least, controversial. Well, maybe I could make that disgraceful, or if you prefer, outrageous. Certainly unprincipled. I mean, holding Canadians Michael Spavar and Michael Kovrig on trumped-up charges for over a thousand days gained great attention, but no consequences for the communists. Neither did the blatant interference in the last federal election or infiltrating and spying uh, in Canada's top security infectious disease lab, or the CSIS report outlining China's cyber attacks, threats, and intimidation of Canadian citizens of Chinese origin and their continued espionage. Still no explanation why the Prime Minister and the Cabinet refused to vote to condemn Uyghur genocide in China. And certainly not one for why the government, after all of this, enters into an agreement with China's Can sino Biologics in early May 2020 to develop a COVID vaccine, as opposed to working with the U.S. I mean, the Chinese reneged on that deal, and maybe that's ultimately good news because the Chinese vaccine has proven to be ineffective anyways. And there's so many more examples. But to the goofy, so far Canada has allowed the Communist Party security services to open up Three, in quotes, service stations in Greater Toronto. I mean, according to the Human Rights Group Safeguard Defenders, the Communist Security Services has these stations as clandestine hubs in the Chinese program of involuntary return a system by which China compels its expats to return home for punishment in instances where they're deemed to have violated Chinese law while abroad, which means anything, right? Anything that Xi Jinping and the communists deems not in the best interest of the party. In just the last year, China itself has talked about 230,000 of their nationals being persuaded to return on various charges. Persuading includes, you know, seizing their family's assets, uh, denying children in China access to schools or health care terminating family members' employment, all with no due process. You know, Global Affairs Canada's China lead, Weldon Epp, admits, in quotes, evidence suggests that the largest source of foreign interference in Canada by state actors is coming from the People's Republic of China. And as usual, the government is studying the problem, don't worry. And as usual, though, is yet to take action. You know, Charles Burton sums up the problem in The Globe and Mail saying, Canada has become China's chew toy. And let me finish by acknowledging, I know for a huge number of Canadians, that's obviously not a big deal. I'm saying for me, it is. Hey, look, that's all the time we have this week. And I just want to invite you again. Well, thank you first for telling friends, telling colleagues, family members to pay attention to money talks. I mean, there's so much going on in the world. And I continue to say this. I'm proud of the fact that, you know, whether you're talking about money talks, tweets or Michael Campbell's money talks on Facebook, we bring you a lot of stuff that isn't in the mainstream media. I mean, there's so much to cover these days. There's so many subjects that are impacting us all personally, financially, that it's tough to cover. But we bring you a lot of stuff, whether it's the energy program, whether it's going on with interest rates, the Federal Reserve, economic growth. That list is a long one. And I think it's important the more information we get, the better informed we are, the better decisions we make. But in the meantime, go out, have a terrific week.
1: This is the Money Talks Podcast with Michael Campbell, available at mikesmoneytalks.ca or through your favorite podcast subscription service. Join us on Facebook at Michael Campbell's Money Talks and on Twitter at Money Talks Tweet.